Good morning. Goedemorgen. Um, I'm reading from Luke 19, verse 28 to 48. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Says, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you, and when your enemies will build an embankment against you, and encircle you, and hem you in on every side, They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it. Good morning. It's good to see uh, some familiar old faces. And uh, some new faces here this morning as well. I hope that as we gather around God's word you might be encouraged So let's pray and then we'll have a look. Father, we thank you that we have your word written. Thank you that um, we need it written down and explained to us. Thank you for the significance of what we are about to read about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that your spirit may enable our hearts to grab hold of it and to value the Lord Jesus Christ even more. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, you should have an outline, and I think it is about the time has come for us to pick up Luke again. I tried very hard to stay away from Luke. Um, Been battling with Luke a a while, but I think the time has come for us to go back to Luke. Um, But that's not why I have that as the topic right at the 
at the start of the outline. Um, interesting, I did a bit of a Google search and uh, found that the time has come is an incredibly favorite kind of reference to lots of songs. But they do tend to be a bit uh, somber songs, sad songs in one sense. So often they say, the time has come for me to let you go. The time has come uh, uh, for me to go. So either I let you go or I go. Um, the time has come uh, to let you loose, uh, one says. The time has come uh, to see the truth. And if I lose you, I'll lose my blues. <laughs> so uh, the time has come is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Um, and funny enough, that actually is where we are now in Luke's gospel. The time has come for Jesus to enter in Jerusalem. And the same thing is going to happen in this section from now on. The word of God is going to fulfillment. From chapter 9, verse 51, we have seen Jesus have turned uh, back towards Jerusalem. And he's on his way to heaven via Jerusalem. And uh, everything that is written about him must now start to be fulfilled. So the time has come for God to do his great work in and through Jesus Christ in the very city that bears God's name. So the time has come, and it's time for us to, to get there too and to work this through. And it is a time of massive change that is going to come about. It's a time of great, funny enough, sadness, yet rejoicing. And that's what we'll see in this section and in the next a while as we work our way. So this is the last kind of block that uh, Luke is giving us to understand what Jesus is really all about. So it really starts out, I've got the three kind of main points uh, on it. I try to be a, a you know, user language. The preparing promised king, then we have the proclaimed promised king with a question mark, and then the prophetic purging promised king. So all the P's, uh, we are in the P's today. So First of all, very simple, it's not a complicated thing, but Luke makes quite a big issue of it. Uh, here is the king who prepares, and he is coming and makes sure that everybody understands, in one sense, who he is. So you've got this kind of a long extended little section of Jesus telling some of his disciples to go and find a cult. Um, and then, what must I do when people ask them? You must tell them the Lord needs it. And then the two people go, and then they untie the cult, and then somebody asks him, why do you untie the cult? And he says, well, the Lord needs it. You wonder why is it making such a big deal about a cult. Um, and this is the first time since Solomon that a king would enter into Jerusalem riding on a cult, on a donkey, which is a, a kind of a president arriving in a uno. All right. So he says, please go and find that blue uno for me uh, because I need to show that I am the king and I'm the president of the country by driving in on a uno. Here Jesus comes on a cult. And the whole idea is it gets picked up for us in Zechariah 9.9. So I want you just to, you'll actually have it on your outline. I wrote it out there for you. A reminder that Jesus is saying, I want you to know who I am. I am now coming to Jerusalem, but not like one of the many pilgrims, because this was the time of the Passover. So literally, Jerusalem, the city's numbers more than doubled during Passover. 
all Jews came from all around the world and they came up to Jerusalem to be part of the Passover. The great festival in which Israel became a nation. The time when God saved them, the time that God actually brought them out of slavery. And so this was the great final kind of a reminder that God has promised that he would actually work with us. And so this is incredible, enthusiastic. Thousands of people are coming. And Jesus is in one sense saying, I am not just coming as another pilgrim. I am coming. And there's that verse. So look at it on your outline. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious or righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so there's the great picture that when you see this happen again, then you will know that the king is coming. But he comes in absolute humility. And he comes in no funfair. He doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't come with an enormous army. He doesn't come to actually attack Jerusalem. And yet, he comes to attack Jerusalem. But he comes on a donkey. It doesn't seem very impressive or very frightening. And he's coming to Jerusalem. And he's saying to them, the time has come for all of God's purposes to go into fulfillment. So there's the first one, quite a long little section just about that, making sure his disciples at least knows that he is the king and he comes. And we'll come back to some of those details there. The next little section is all about him being proclaimed as king. So in verse 34, uh, sorry, verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. So this is like what you would call the red carpet treatment. All right, so... Nobody else did that for anybody else. They did it for the nobility, for the important people. People didn't have a red carpet those days. They had cloaks, and so they put your cloak down for him to actually uh, ride over. And they would pick up the cloaks at the back and run forward and put it down again so that he could kind of keep on being on this carpet all the way down from the Mount of Olives uh, to Jerusalem itself. And so they are ecstatic. They are saying, here is him, it's him. And then they say that. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So they recognized that this Jesus is indeed different. He's the one who did all the miracles. He's the one who turned the world as we know it upside down. He brought healing where there was sickness. He brought life where there was death. He brought abundance where there was scarcity. He brought joy where there was sadness. He's turned the world upside down as they walked with him. Wherever he went, the world is a bit different. And they are saying, here he comes. Now things are going to happen. So they're very excited, those disciples who were with him. And then they sing, blessed, verse 38, is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so if you note carefully on your outline, it's also made a little change to the thing. They have changed the text. Psalm 118, verse 26, is one of the Psalms of Ascent. These are the Psalms that the people sang as they came up to Jerusalem. There's a number of levels in which this Psalm actually works. Whenever you saw someone go up to Jerusalem for Passover, that's what you would shout to him. Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. You are coming to the Lord. You're coming because of the Lord, and you will be blessed because we are going to celebrate again God's great act of salvation. God's great act of making us into his people. But also the priests would say this 
to the pilgrims as they come up to the temple. Or sometimes the priest would say that to the nobility that would come to the temple. And here they change that word from he to the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they make it absolutely clear that they recognized and understood everything Jesus has done. Here's the cult. Get the cult. Why? Because the Lord needs him. Twice, you are told. This is not just someone who needs it. This is the Lord, the master, who needs it. They interpret that correctly, that he is the king. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah that they've already seen quite early, but now they are proclaiming him publicly. Remember when they start, did it the first time? You are the Messiah, Jesus said. Shush. Don't tell anybody. Because no one would understand. Now he comes and he allows them to shout it and they dance and they sing and they throw their clothes around and he accepts it. I'm coming as the king. And like normal, there's always detractors. So, I mean, you never can stand around a braai and uh, say anything good in this world. There'll always be people who don't agree with you. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This, they're going a bit over to the top. Jesus, surely they are wrong. Tell them to shut up. And Jesus says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Creation itself will recognize that the king has come. See, the king actually comes for people. But creation will actually shout if men don't shout. The world suffers because we are evil. Did you know that? Creation is not what it should be because we are not what we ought to be. Creation is waiting for us one day for all the sons of God to be revealed in glory, in righteousness. So here he comes and Jesus says, if they don't shout, then literally the stones will start shouting. I would wish it actually did happen. Isn't it? But as he arrives into Jerusalem, the stones started shouting. The king has come. The one who is going to reverse all the problems of this world, the world that we live in, that we so desperately long for, he is coming. And so Jesus here publicly accepts the worship as the Messiah. So it's an incredible, wonderful occasion, is it? Well, look at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. <laughs> Massive contrast, isn't it? Yes! The king is coming. Creation will shout. But the king creator cries as he looks at Jerusalem. The time has come for Jerusalem to be judged. The king has come. See, Jerusalem thought if the king comes, everything is going to be fine. <laughs> the king says, you don't seem to understand. Look how he puts it. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon when the enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in, on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. 
They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So here the king comes. Everybody's excited because everybody is looking for a world that will change, be good, be amazing. And the king comes and he cries. He says, you guys don't seem to realize what it does take for peace actually to happen. What will it take for true peace to come? Jerusalem, the city of God, the place where God's name was to be glorified and held up is the place that will be destroyed. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So I've given you quite a number of Old Testament references in your outline. Because that is the background to trying to understand what is going on here. So we're not going to read all of them, but you can go and read them at home. Malachi tells us that God says, I'm going to come... And I'm going to come suddenly. And then, who will be able to stand when I come? I will have to purify and judge. Because you have not been righteous. See, when I bring life, I bring with it righteousness. Exactly the same happens in Isaiah, which is kind of quoted here in verse 46. My house will be a house of prayer. If you read the entire Isaiah 56, it's absolutely magnificent. I want you to just flip back to that. I just want to read you one verse that kind of summarizes uh, everything that's going on. That all these passages in one sense have in common. So go to Isaiah 56 if you can, if you're still awake. Magnificent verse that kind of hits everything that is going on. Verse 50, uh, chapter 56, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. So here's the problem. <laughs> Was Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of God where God made his name to dwell. Jerusalem, the temple where God actually is the footstool for his feet in one sense, where he has made himself known. You should have been the place of justice and righteousness so that the world may know salvation. But all these passages tells us that that is not what Jerusalem was. That Jerusalem was a place that loved religion more than righteousness. But it's true, isn't it? Don't we too? Isn't it easier to be religious than to be righteous? It's easier to come to church on a Sunday morning, isn't it? I mean, it's tough this morning, it's cold, so I'm quite impressed that you guys are here. It's easier to come to a meeting than to be righteous. It's easier to go and make sacrifice than to actually be righteous and just. Is that true? It's easier to be religious 
than to be righteous. That's a very hard pill to swallow. Not so. God's righteousness is a perfect righteousness. Do what is right. Look out for the foreigner. Care for those who are in a worse position than you. Those are the things of righteousness. Jesus says it's easier to be religious, Israel, than to be righteous. And because of that, as I come, I must establish true righteousness. Otherwise, you will never have peace. Peace is the result of everything being done right. And that is Israel and Jerusalem and the temple's problem. You see, they were robbing God and they were robbing people. They were telling people, you can live like you want and then come to the temple and then say you're sorry and then everything's fine. Sounds familiar? We've got a slogan in our, in, our, in our world. I mean, I've used it. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. It's actually at that very level that Israel has failed to present God. They said, all we do is we just do these kind of sacrifices, and then God will be happy with us. The fact that we leave here and go and do what is unjust and unrighteous and unkind and unfair, you know, I mean... We'll just come back and do this again. God will be happy with us. If only you would know what it takes for peace to come, says Jesus. Interesting. So yes, we're going to do emotionally turmoil, isn't it? On the one hand, everybody's excited that the king is eventually coming years, centuries since the last promise of a king coming. And when he arrives... He cries and says, you do not seem to understand who I am and what I'm about. You rob people of God's glory and you rob God of his glory by pretending that you're righteous. By thinking you can just quickly do a couple of things. And this comes from Jeremiah. You need to go and read Jeremiah 7, 1 to 29. Fantastic passage about how easy it is for us to do exactly that. What will it cost to establish peace? If only you would know, says Jesus, you would not understand. And so if you flip back to Luke chapter 13, we've already seen something interesting. Jesus has referred to this very event. Verse 33 says, In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely a prophet cannot die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together and as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, and here's the quote, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This has now happened. But that word there, interesting, if you go back to verse 35, look, your house is left to you desolate. Very interesting, the word desolate is actually not in the text. It actually says, your house is left to you. It is no longer my house. 
That's how you've acted. That's how you lived. It's left to you. And when it's left to you, it has to actually be judged. It has to be removed. So here comes the incredible thing. For, for peace to be established, God must remove every conceivable way in which a human can think he can be righteous before God. He has to remove the very temple where he had made his name dwell and the very city that he has given his name to. So that man will not think they can establish peace by what they do and how religious they are. They, man cannot climb up from the bottom up because man actually is unrighteous. Every thing that man does in order to climb up actually is part of his unrighteousness. So Jesus says, judgment is going to come. And yet it becomes quite interesting. So verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. You see, here's the interesting thing. In order for them to hold on to their position, they were prepared to kill. They were fighting to kill Jesus so that they can have their religion and their position and their understanding that they are God's people and their understanding of who they think God is and that God would be happy with them the way in which they go about it. So they were protecting their own. It sounds familiar, isn't it? Mankind is prepared to kill others to uphold their ideology of what will make for a better life. You look at all the political systems in the world, that's still happening. I will take out those who actually oppose my understanding of how we will establish a world in which it's worth living in. The way we understand and so that's what they're doing. And that's what we're going to see. They're going to plot and scheme to kill Jesus, to get rid of him. But here's the real irony of the whole story. Death is the very thing that Jesus is fighting for. For his own death. Jesus is going to make sure that they kill him. Sounds weird, isn't it? We're going to see Jesus has to help them to kill him for the right reason. So that he may establish God's peace in heaven and on earth. What will it take for peace to come? It will take God's gift, God's son of righteousness, to willingly lay down his life so that Righteousness may be established and so that salvation may come. Salvation can only come if righteousness is established. So here you're going to find a very weird thing going to happen. They're going to argue and try to kill Jesus and Jesus is going to help them to find the right reasons why they should kill him. And that it will be clear for everyone that he is going to die innocently. Because that is what it takes 
to establish righteousness on earth for mankind. It is God in heaven has to give a gift of his own son in order to bring that about. That's really wacko, isn't it? So just think about the message we take out into the world. The message we believe. What does it take? What will it take to bring about peace on earth? There's only one thing that it takes, and that is Jesus Christ's willing death for us. That is the testimony by which there is salvation for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. For everyone who recognizes, I am not righteous enough to be in God's presence and in his life. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever. There's only one way in which it can happen. And that is because his son has willingly come to fight to die to set us free. He steps into death in order to bring about the righteousness of God so that there may be peace and salvation in his name everywhere. That's the way the New Testament picks it up. There is no salvation in any other name or system or belief or effort or anything by which man can be saved than through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now take it, that's where we have to battle with our own minds. How convinced are we about this upside down way in which God does things? And yet, as you look at it, and as you look in the mirror, and as you listen to what other people are saying, and how unjust and unfair and unrighteous so many of our human efforts are, you can see that the only hope that we really do have is that in Christ Jesus alone there is hope for the world. And so Jesus says, I need to remove religion in order to place myself as the foundation for righteousness and peace and salvation. So I take it we have to work hard to not fall into religion or not talk religion, but actually talk about the absolute, wonderful, amazing righteousness of Christ. And that that is what our hearts believe and that's what our mouths confess. That the time has come to stop being religious. The time has come for the world to hear that no matter how hard they try, they will not bring about a better life. If you say that to people, have you ever said that to someone? Have you noticed that they are suddenly full of love and compassion for you? They'll hate you. Just like they hated Jesus. When he said to them, you cannot build a world of peace and righteousness. They hated him. You say to people, no matter how hard you try, you will not be able to do it. They'll hate you. They'll tell you you're negative, you're pessimistic, you're stupid, you're dark. And yet here Jesus says exactly that. Do you know what it takes to bring about 
peace. It takes perfect, humble righteousness. See, your king comes riding on a donkey. He's humble. He is righteous. And he has salvation with him. And if that is not what you recognize, then Jesus says, Woe to you for thinking you can establish any other foundation. So it's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's a joyful, terrifying thing. We've got to go and tell the world, no matter how hard we work, we're not going to get it right. And at the same time telling them, you know what? You don't have to work hard at all. Because Jesus Christ has humbly come to give us righteousness so that we may have salvation. And in him and through him alone there is salvation. So that's what we're going to see worked out in the next section. Lots of arguments and lots of things going to go on. And you're going to get almost the same point over and over again. How convinced are you that there is no salvation for people outside of Jesus Christ? I guess the time has come for you to make up your mind about what your heart truly believes and what your mouth confesses. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word, and so often your word is upside down from our expectations. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ could weep over Jerusalem, the very city that is supposed to have understood how righteous and holy and just you are. And yet did not understand it at all. And did not recognize that their Lord and King came to them. So Father, we thank you that we can wrestle with this. These are huge issues. They are foundational, fundamental things that this passage in one sense address. Where does our hope lie for life, for righteousness and for peace and for justice? Help us, Lord, to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, who actually came into this world exactly to die at the very place where people say they are for God, which they weren't. And so we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has always been for you and that he embodies your perfect righteousness and that he embodies your perfect salvation and that in and through him there is hope for us here today and there's hope for this world so help us Lord to grow in our own convictions so that we may testify and seek to reason with people about what is necessary for peace to be made thank you that now in Christ Jesus we have peace with you we pray, Lord, for that long day that peace will 
overrun this world when you come again in glory. So help us to have that conviction and that testimony in our hearts and on our lips that Jesus Christ is your righteousness and he is therefore our righteousness and he is your salvation and therefore he is our salvation because he has come for us, for everyone who would call on his name. So thank you, Lord, for this very simple reminder, for this very deep reality. Help us to rejoice in the peace that we have in Christ Jesus and help us to hold that out in a world where there is war and fighting in families, in businesses, in politics, wherever we turn, people are fighting for a better life. We pray that you will give us a deeper understanding of figuring out how Jesus actually brings about strength and hope and perseverance in all of those areas because he is your righteousness and salvation. So help us, Lord, to testify and to declare you as king. And we pray this in your great name. Amen.